listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. We have a great guest today. Uh, my guest, what can I say? He's an uh, award-winning novelist who's written a ton of books. He's a TV writer and producer who worked on, you can say, one of the top 20 shows of all time. And I know he's a big music fan because I saw him in a documentary called Salad Days about the punk rock scene in D.C. And my guest is George Pelicanos. How you doing, George? I'm good, thank you. Good. Um, so how did you end up in the movie Salad Days? Oh, well, um, I, you know, I grew up here. I've lived here my whole life. And, um, and um, believe it or not, punk rock is over 40 years old. And so even a middle-aged guy like me was, <laughs> was young once and involved in the uh, punk rock scene here in D.C. Um, and when I say involved, I wasn't. You wouldn't have picked me out in a crowd looking like a punk guy. You know, I didn't, I didn't dress it. I didn't, I didn't wear my hair a certain way, but I was into the music big time. And, uh, and I used to go all over town and see, see shows. And, um, and, the, and the, the thing about the, the DC punk scene was not everybody, but the, the main components of it, the, the people that were really the, the biggest acts and so on, um, were into this positive force thing, which was a different kind of scene than a lot of the punk uh, scenes around the country, in that it was um, pro-humanist, and um, you know a lot of people were active in the community, and and still are. You know, there's people from from bands back in the day that are now uh, teachers and volunteers and community activists and things of that nature. So it was attractive to me. And so they approached you because they knew you were involved in it and said, we want to put you in this documentary? I mean, a lot of it is just that when you attain a certain level of celebrity, which on a local level I have, I get asked to do a lot of these because it adds value to what they're doing. You know, they can they can sort of use you to promote it. Um, but um, I knew... Um, Jim Saw and Scott Crawford, who made the film. I'm pretty good friends with Jim Saw. He's a notable um, uh, punk rock photographer for a long time here in town. And Jim had his own uh, magazine called Uno Mas. And he's a friend of mine, so I did it for that reason. And that's why I was in it. Now, you're, you're a DC guy, as you said. When you were a kid, what was writing on your mind? I mean, what was your childhood and teen years like? What made you end up pursuing a career in writing? Well, uh, that, that's a long answer, but um, in the in the late 60s, when I was a kid, um, uh, the, the riots happened here after the um, assassination of uh, Dr. King. And um, that was a big event here in Washington. For a kid, it's a really big, wide, you know, wide-eyed look at, at things. And my dad had a diner, you know, Greek, typical Greek diner. Um, uh, and I worked there after the riots downtown, and I took the bus downtown every day, the D.C. Transit. And I, I went through down Georgia Avenue, which was, uh, and 7th Street, which is the black uh, corridor, and one of the black corridors in town, and one of the riot corridors at 7th Street, had burned to the ground. And um, the people on the bus were 
looked different to me as a kid than they had before the riots. They were standing, you know, taller and um, were not subservient anymore. And the riot was something that had uh, like a rain that had cleared the streets. So I'd go down to my dad's place and um, and and on one side of the counter was his crew, which were all black Washingtonians. And then my father and I, Greek Americans, my dad was born in Greece. And then on the other side of the counter were uh, white people wearing ties because it was 1968. And that, that counter was a dividing line that I didn't understand intellectually, but I got it viscerally. And, um, and I've been writing about that divide ever since. So that's really what formed me to be a writer. And by the way, I saw Dr. King at the uh, National Cathedral, which is right across the street from my church, four days before he was assassinated on Sunday, uh, March 31st. So all these things had a huge influence on me. And, and I had a big imagination, so I, I would deliver food for my father. That was my job. I'd take these bags of food, and I'd go out in, in the streets and walk the streets and you know deliver food to the office buildings. And I had a lot of time on my hands. And I used to make up these stories and serialize them as I was working. And um, I was I was really writing books from an early age. I mean, that, I didn't know I was going to do that, but that's what I was doing. What was it like seeing, I just have to ask you, what was it like seeing uh, Dr. King speak in person? Well, actually, it's it's even more ethereal than that. I, I, I heard a voice coming out of my church. And I walked across the street, and there was thousands of people behind the uh, cathedral, and they had hung speakers on the back walls uh, on the outside. And and so I stood with everybody, and I listened to them. I, I didn't see them because you couldn't get in; it was so packed. And and it was more interesting to me as a kid to look at the people that were there, and and to see the effect on what he was saying on on them. They were in rapt attention, and I knew it was something. I was witnessing something special that um, that were, I would carry with me for my whole life. Now, you said you were writing the stories in your in your head when you were young, which I haven't told. I think a lot of writers. Did you have any influences that you started reading that gave you direction in which way you were going to develop? No, it wasn't books that that got me turned on to storytelling. It was movies. And, um, um, you know, watched a lot of Westerns with my family when I was a kid because Greeks love Westerns. You know, it's their, it's their version of history, um, American history. And, you know, having no, we had no experiential version of American history because my people came over here in the teens and twenties. Um, and then, you know, my dad would take me to the movies and movies like, the Dirty Dozen in 67, and then especially The Wild Bunch in 69, um, gave me the idea that I wanted to be, I wanted to make movies someday. And I was really lucky to grow up in a time that, you know, if I can take this into the early 70s when I, when I became a teenager, that was the golden age of films. So I was going around town, uh, not just seeing stuff like, um, like Taxi Driver and The Gambler and all these films, but the great crime films of the 70s and the black exploitation films and the kung fu films that were just jacked, getting me all jacked up. And I would go to 
I would go to, you know, I would go to places that, like the black sections of town that played the black exploitation films, or we'd go to the drive-in. And so you, it was always an adventure, you know, and, and that, that sense of adventure was coupled with the movies I was seeing, and, and it just really inspired me to, uh, to become a storyteller. It wasn't until I went to college and I took an elective class in crime fiction my senior year that I started reading books. And that's what uh, set me down this path. Now, you went to, I believe, University of Maryland, is that right? Yeah. You're a Terp. Um, you, you graduated college and you said it set you down the path. How do you start pursuing your writing career? Well, I, I got, at Maryland, I got a degree in film, in film production, so that's still what I wanted to do. But I realized, you know, I wanted to stay in D.C., and there's nothing here. There's no film production here. Um, I knew that was sort of a pipe dream. And and the books got me, um, you know, turned in another direction. So what I, in the back of my mind, I thought, well, I'm just going to keep working the kind of jobs that I've always worked, which was, kitchens, bars, you know, I sold women's shoes for many years, I sold stereos and televisions, and I'm going to keep doing that, and and I'm just going to read everything I can, so for the next 10 years, I worked these jobs that I actually liked, um, and and I tried to read at least a couple books a week to figure out how it was done, because I never took a writing class, and, and I didn't want to go back to college for an advanced degree. And um, when I was around 30, I think it was 31, I decided to give it a try. I felt like, well, I can, I think I can do this. And I wrote a book. And I'm going to give you the short version of it. I sent the book up to New York blindly, uh, unagented submission to one publisher, St. Martin's Press, because I did a little research and I saw that they published a lot of, a lot of uh, crime novels. And, and I sort of forgot about it. I started writing another book. And a year later, I got a call from a young editor with St. Martin's, this guy, uh, Gordon Van Gelder. And he told me, uh, he left a message on my machine that, that he had just picked it up off the slush pile and he wanted to buy it. So you sell it, your first book, and just a year later, which is totally unexpected and it's so cool. How did you choose the genre? I mean, I knew you had the characters you worked with and the people you met, but how did you choose the genre you wanted to follow? Um, I recognized it as um, the people's literature, you want to call it proletariat literature, whatever you want to call it. It was, um, it was written about the people who were also the, the same people who were the readers. And I sort of knew that because my dad, my dad wasn't a huge reader, but he always had a, uh, like a John D. McDonald paperback on his nightstand, Travis McGee, and, and things like that. And um, I, if you, if you follow the adage, write what you know, you know, I came from a blue collar background. Um, I was not going to write a, poli a political novel about Washington. I wasn't going to write a novel about the people who live on, on the other side of town from me, which was, uh, which is west of Rock Creek Park. Um, you know, Chevy Chase, Bethesda, those places. I don't, I don't know those people. Um, and 
and the crime, you know, the crime fiction arena, actually the, the milieu, I saw it as a as a place to set my books where I could talk about some of the social issues that had begun to interest me. And in the beginning, I feel like, you know, there's been phases in my career. I mean, the first few books I wrote, wrote were pretty straight um, detective novels, and they were, I considered them to be punk rock detective novels in the sense that, like uh, the musicians who I was going to see um, at night, they weren't trained musicians. They were just people who thought they could contribute something and they would pick up a guitar or pick up the sticks and they would play. And that's that's what I considered myself to be because, again, I had never been trained as a writer. I was learning as I was going along. And, I, you know, I, I never let it inhibit me because of the punk rock influence. I never thought, well, I didn't go to the right school. I don't have the right education. You know, I just did it. Um, but in, in, in the early nineties, um, I guess about the time that my third book was published, I went down to Brazil, um, to, to adopt my second son. And, um, we got, uh, my wife and I got sort of stuck down there because of bureaucracy and so on. And then I ended up being in Brazil for three or four months. And this was at a low point of Brazil's, um, history. Um, where it was a very dismal place in terms of poverty, and and there's no safety net there. So uh, what you don't see in America with poor people or impoverished people, you saw it right out. In, in, because we have welfare and social programs, you saw it right out front in, in Brazil. That is, you saw you know kids eating out of trash cans, and and you saw children with murder in their eyes, and all the you know, I came back sort of radicalized in the sense that I wanted to write about what was going on behind the scenes um, here in America and about people that normally don't get represented in, in literature. And, and I'm, I'm not talking about race. I'm talking more about, about class. You know, American fiction is um, generally about people who win. And in my books... Um, you know, the, the characters don't usually win because it, it's very, you know, it's not reflective of, of the uh, arena in which they live. So the books changed and they got uh, a little further away from the crime fiction aspect of it and more into the social aspect of it. Now, what was your publishers thinking? Because you did a Nick Stefano series and people were listening, reading them. There's three of them. What, how does a publisher act when you say, you know, I'm changing gear? Were you, did you have to be locked into a few of the Stefano series? Or how did you tell them, hey, you know what, here's what I want to do? Or did you just do it because you had that punk rock attitude? Well, I, I went over to uh, Little Brown after my fifth novel. And um, the, the one thing that I was fortunate about with, with regards to your question is that at the time I wasn't making much money. You know, the, the, the advances at St. Martin's were, my first book, they paid me $2,500. My second book was 3000 The third was 3500 So you get the pattern there. And when you're, when you're getting those kinds of advances, they don't really bother you much. Or they don't, they don't talk to you about the, uh, you know, why don't, why don't you do something a little more commercial or, or you know, stick with 
write something on the other side of town so we can get a big, you know, white readership. You know what I mean? Like, those kind of things never came up. And by the time I went to Little Brown, they, I was starting to make a little bit of a name for myself because of the Europe, because of Europe. You know, European writers, uh, critics, and so on, started writing about me. And it, it came over, it bounced back over the Atlantic. And some of the critics here were saying, who is this guy? You know, they're, they're over there talking about this guy. We don't even know who he is. And so by then I had begun to um, get a little notoriety for what I was doing. And um, I had um, a couple of editors over there, first Michael Peach and Little Brown, who, who got in, um, moved, up, moved on into the... Uh, the corporate side of things. And then for the last, oh, I don't know, 12 novels I've written, I've been with Reagan Arthur, um, who's the publisher there. And we've always had the kind of relationship where she um, um, encourages me to write what I'm passionate about. And so those questions have never really come up. Now, later you wrote about Derek Strange and then the Terry Quince, it's a series. When you wrote that first one, did you know it would be a series, or were you just writing a first book to see how it did with that character? Yeah, that's what I always do. Um, I don't, I don't have plans really. Um, and if I come to the end of a book and, and I, I think you know that I really like this guy, I'm going to keep writing about him. Then I do, and I, and I do. Uh, you know, you brought up Derek Strong, all of my characters that I've ever written, and. Um, you know, there was, there's been five books with him now, but what I did was I jumped around in time. So there's three books of Derek Strange as a contemporary, as a, as a middle-aged man, and there's two books of him as, as a young man. And that helps me keep the interest and also it helps me uh, define his life. You know, if I can write him in, in full by... Um, by having him as a young man and a middle-aged man, it makes it—it it just makes it more satisfying for me, more complex. So you're you're writing these books, you're getting acclaim. How do you make the transition to TV? What happened there? I had done a little uh, screenwriting, um, and I adapted um, my book King Sucker Man from Miramax. It didn't get made, but the, but the script got around, and I started getting a little work. Um, and then um, I, I ran into uh, David Simon somewhere. He was, uh, the reason I even knew David Simon was because I was friendly with his, um, his now wife, Laura Lippman, who's you know, a very good writer in her own right. And um, she was a Baltimore Sun reporter and we, got, we became friendly. And then um, we went to the f a funeral for a mutual friend in Baltimore and David said to me, uh, let me give you a ride back to the, uh, to the lake, to the Shiva. And so we're driving back, and he says, I just sold a, a show to HBO. It's about cops and drug dealers. That's what he said. He didn't, have, he didn't say, you know, make any grandiose pronouncement about how it's going to be this cultural touchstone about American society and, and a dying city and so on. He just said, cops and drug dealers. And he said, I just read one of your books. Laura gave it to me. Uh, it's called Sweet Forever, and um, you know I think you're you're doing your in your own way you're doing in D.C. what I'm doing here in Baltimore, and I knew what he meant, 
and I had seen the corner, so I knew what he was. Uh, I knew where his heart was and where, and you know, how smart he was. So uh, he asked me to write an episode for season one, and I did. And it was sort of an infamous episode. It's the one where um, Wallace's kid killed by his friends. That's not a spoiler. After you know, eighteen years, it's not a spoiler anymore. And and that kid was Michael B. Jordan, the actor. Um, the the episode made kind of a splash, and then David said to me, um, "Why don't you come on full time next year? Because we're doing a uh, this." Uh, the story about the death of uh, the working class down the docks, and there's going to be a bunch of Greeks in it. And I need you to, um, you know, I need you to come on board. We don't know, you know, we don't have anybody that's Greek and speaks Greek and so on. I later found out it didn't even matter because if you remember at the end of season two, um, the character named Greek actually says, "I'm not even Greek." Right. You know, he could have been anything. Um, David just wanted me to come work, and I did, but but. My intention at that point was to learn how to become a producer, to work, you know, to get another skill set, another uh, gun in my arsenal. I just really wanted to learn how to do it, and I found that I, that I took to it pretty quickly. And by season three, I was producing. Now, now was it not hard for you? But you're you're a you're a DC guy, and you know, like I'm from outside Philadelphia. We have a rivalry with you know people outside. New York, it's the Jersey thing for us, you know, North Jersey people, South Jersey people. What was it like when you all of a sudden had to be writing about Baltimore when your knowledge is so strong in the D.C. area? It's true. um, People don't realize, you know, Baltimore is only 45 minutes away from Washington, but it's two different, very different cultures. We're south of the Mason-Dixon line, you're north of it, and and it's a northern city. D.C. is a southern city. And we have a different language here. We even have different music and style of dress and so on. So, but I always felt the same way I felt about my books is don't get shook, you know, don't be scared. Because if you know people, you can write. And um, and I remember when, I remember when, uh, well, let me just backtrack. This is one thing I do when I go to a, another city I did this with New Orleans too when I did the show Tremaze. I, I don't drive typically. I go out at night and I walk around and I walk in the bars and I talk to people and I just try to get a feel for everybody and get to, and get to know people. You know, that's that's a key is um, is to get out into the world, talk to people, don't be timid and, and then respect the people that you're talking to in the sense that don't don't stereotype anybody, you know. Wait until you, wait until you know what you're what you're talking about. But when when Richard Price came down for the wire, and he said to me, uh, "Richard's a real, very detail oriented guy, and he loves to do his research." And he said, um, I, "I don't know, you know, I don't know Baltimore. Like I don't know streets, street names. I don't know what am I what am I going to do?" And I said. Just do what you do in New York, and uh, you know we'll fill in the street names because you know people, and that's that's the answer right there. Now, when do you know that this show is really gaining momentum? I mean, you know, you know it's a good show, and it's. But 
Did you know it was going to be, end up being a great show? I mean, you know, it's it's one of the top 20 shows of all time, you could say. I mean, people argue. I beg the difference. It's the top show of all time. Okay, well, yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> but no, when when do you... When did you get that feeling that this, this was something special and it's going to be iconic? I think, well, I think we didn't know it was going to be iconic because we, the ratings were never good. And and every year, David had to fly out to L.A. and, and, and beg uh, the suits at HBO to keep us on the air, which, to their credit, they did. You know, it didn't, it didn't uh, rock the zeitgeist until after we were off the air. And started going around the world and that kind of thing. But I would say uh, around the middle of season three, which is the uh, the season where we we tackled uh, the legalization of drugs, I I knew and we all knew that we were doing something special. Um, you know, maybe David knew it the whole time, but I didn't really know. I mean, it's it's hard enough trying to trying to write something good. So you're you're when you're in the middle of it, you've kind of got blinders on. You're just pushing a rock up a hill every day and, and hoping and putting out fires, which is a lot of what producing is solving problems. Um, so you don't really have time to think about like it's not legacy time yet. Um, and that's that's what it was like. It was just and we're all and the other thing that helped was that we were all very competitive. All the guys in the writers room. Um, and we all thought we were the best writer in the room, each, each and every one of us, which is how it should be. So the result was that, you know, we all took it very seriously. Like, uh, we used to say, like, there's no such thing as a, as a scene that's not important. And, you know, even if it's a scene of two people in a room talking about politics or something, make it, make it crackle. You know, I, I didn't want, um, I didn't want anybody get up and take a piss while they were watching my episode or go get a beer <laughs> because they would miss something. Now, you said everyone thought they were the best in the in the writer's room. As a writer, when it was your script, was that, because everyone thought they were the best, was it harder to take some, you know, if there's any criticism or was it easier because you knew these people were great writers? No, it wasn't easy. I, I look, I didn't, um, you know, when you go to when you go to a uh, like a, an advanced writing school and you get your MBA in, in uh, you know in writing, um, you have people criticizing you all the time, and and you know there's there's there are things under the surface like uh, you know jealousy or whatever. There's all all sorts of things happening. But you sort of have to take it, I guess. But I've never experienced that before, and I. And look, I didn't like it. I don't like it to this day. Um, but, and and we we argued constantly in that room. It was one of the most, I would say it's one of the most contentious rooms that I've ever been in. Um, but out of that came a great show. And I think that it was because of the argument that, um, and it was mostly, it was mostly men. I mean, we had, um, uh, we had a woman, uh, uh, Joy Lusko Kekin, was a good writer in the early days of the show, and, and she was in there. But for the most part, after that, it was all men in there, and and it was um, they didn't care, and neither did I about 
without hurting somebody's feelings. So that it was it was pretty naked aggression at times. But we made a good show. Now, as you were writing for The Wire, you were also writing novels. And now I'm sure it wasn't during the season, but how do you juggle that? Because you're going from you know, you, you have to know so many characters, and I know you know people, but you have to know so many characters in The Wire and different writing, and then you're going back to just your solo writing. Was it a hard transition? Well, no. It was, I had to manage my time, obviously, and, and I have a real strict regimen. Um, so I knew that if I had five months off between seasons, I had to write a novel in five months. And I got, you know, I just like got right into it, um, and it, it disciplined me. Um, I write when I'm writing a book. I write seven days a week, anyway, you know, and I work two shifts a day, so it's a real intense period uh, of time. But when while I was doing The Wire, I wrote one of my biggest novels. When I mean big, I'm, I'm talking about. Well, it actually was my most popular novel. It's called The Night Gardener. But when I said big, what I mean is that it was it was a it was a big, you know, research intensive book, that, and it was also very long, and, and that you know that was kind of difficult. Um, but I took it on, and when you have it, when you have it like knocking on your door, you have to go for it, man. You got to go. You got to you got to write it. You know what I mean? And 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 it was a period of my life that creatively like the faucet was on you know what I'm saying like I all I had to do was all I, all I needed was time I was fighting time but I had the I had the uh, I had the creativity and I and, and I had the will I just needed the time and I managed to make it work now when the wire ended you know you worked on this great show you're a very successful novelist you've always wanted to work in films as you said what do you target now? After The Wire ends, and you, you already know that your novels are great, what are you personally, what are you personally striving for at that point? I, well, um, specifically, I wanted to keep doing what I was doing, which was to, to continue to write novels and to work in television. And the reason I wanted to stay in television was that I was working on projects in television that were very similar to the movies that I loved when I was a kid. And those those issues-driven movies, like the Sidney Lumet movies and so on, um, weren't being made anymore. And, and with each passing year, they are definitely not being made anymore. That kind of stuff is only being done on television. So I knew I was going to focus on that. Plus, I've never had any luck with the movies. I, I can't seem to get anything made. They get developed to death, and they just never pull the trigger. Whereas in television, once the ball gets rolling, you know, you're working. Um, but in a broader sense, my goal is has always been the same, and it's continues, it will continue to be, which is just to become a better writer. You know, that's my goal. I hope I get better. And, and, that's, and, and I'm, I've got the rest of my life to, uh, to work on it because I'm not going to retire. Now, you came up. You ended up working on a miniseries, The Pacific. What is it like working on a miniseries when you know it's just going to be a, it's going to be 
10 episodes and that's it. Is it, do you have to put yourself in a different mind frame than when you know that, you know, the show's got a different show's got a momentum and you, there's going to be more episodes to write? Um, the, uh, that was a, that was a special case because I, I did that. I, I went after that show. It's the only time I've ever called my agent and say, can you, can you make a call for me? I want to work on something. Um, because my dad was a Marine in the Pacific, and my dad was, was sick at, at the time, and, um, and I wanted to honor him before he passed. So I did that. It wasn't a, it wasn't a great experience because uh, I wasn't in control of anything. I, even though I'm listed as a producer, I never got involved as a producer. I never went to set. Set was you know, in the Philippines and places like that. Um, and I was out of my element. I was working in California. I, I was uncomfortable working in California with a different mindset out there um, with people that I didn't know and um, and that I couldn't really trust, to be honest with you. And uh, I have always worked um, east of the Mississippi River. Everything we've shot has been east of the Mississippi, except for on Treme, we, we went over to Mississippi on the West Bank for a couple of for a couple of scenes, but that was it. Um, as far as the miniseries goes, I'm, I'm, the next thing I'm doing is a miniseries set in Baltimore. We're, we're rounding up. Uh, we rounded up all the guys from the wire, and we're going to do a. Uh, uh, a thing about um, the police up there and the city that is taken right out of uh, the headlines. It, that's about all I can tell you, but that's my next project, and that's going to be, that's definitely a one-off. It's, it's uh, six or eight episodes. So. Now, now, yeah, tri- I mean, I'll, what's that? I, I, will do, I will do that if it, if it interests me. I, I think, I actually, um, at this point in my life now, I'm in, I, I'm in my early 60s. Um, I don't want to get stuck on a television show that's going to run for five years because there's a lot of things that I want to do. So the miniseries uh, idea has become a lot more attractive to me because then I can, I can mix it up. Now, Treme, you know, was that... Was, did you know uh, you were going to work on that? Was it something that uh, he came to you and said, you know what? I have this project, I want you on it, or was it something that you just fell into? I mean, how did you get recruited for that? That was, uh, well, David knew I loved music, you know, but he didn't ask me to, um, he, he had, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking back now, he asked me to write an episode for that. So I was on, I was on the original writing, you know, in the writer's room for that for the, for the first season, but I wasn't going to um, go down there and produce it. And, our friend uh, David Mills uh, was on the show as a producer, and uh, David was uh, one of David Simon's best friends from college. They worked; they were both at Maryland also, and they, they worked on the Diamondbacks together, the, uh, the school newspaper. And and tragically, um, uh, David Mills died on set uh, when we were shooting season one, and and I knew David too. Uh, Simon called me up and he said, um, he told me what happened and, and, and 
course, he was very upset, and he asked me if I'd come down and, and uh, take over where, where, where uh, David, David Mills left, left off, and I did. And I ended up uh, producing the, for the run of the series. And I got to live in New Orleans, and um, and it was one of the best experiences I've ever had in this business, just a fantastic place to, uh, to live and work. I'm really grateful for that opportunity. Now, now you said you don't like to go past the Mississippi. Uh, how did it work? Because I know you wrote an episode for Bosch, and that's shot in L.A. Did you write that from home and just send it to him, or how did that? You know, what was that experience? Yeah, well, I'm I'm old friends with uh, Mike Connolly. We we go back to when we both started writing books, and um, he asked me to uh, to be in the writers' room, which was in New York. And uh, and write an episode for the first season, and I did it, but I never went to set or anything like that. And um, so that was a one-off, yeah. And then now the Deuce. Now you're, I guess, is it co-creator of the Deuce? How did you just was yeah. that was that both your guys' ideas, or how did you come up with that idea? And you must have loved it because it takes you know because you love writing for characters, and there's great characters in it. But how did that come? How did that series arise? Yeah, that was also one of those things that uh, somebody came to us and said, um, um, you know, I have an idea for a show, birth of pornography, all that in New York, Times Square. And, and uh, David and I took the meeting as a uh, as a courtesy because we knew the guy. He had been a location uh, manager for us in New Orleans. So we went up to New York and we had no intention of getting involved, to be honest with you, because neither one of us wanted to do a show about pornography. As you can imagine, it's it's a minefield, and it's it's been tried many times before, and it, ne- it really never worked, because it always ends up being, you know, exploitation. I mean, basically, you shoot porn, you know? And, and um, so we got in a room with this guy, and he had... Uh, he was nearing the end of his life, and he had owned a bar that was mopped up in Times Square, and he knew everybody. And and because he was such a, uh, when I say he knew everybody, he knew all the pimps, the prostitutes, the porn actors, and uh, activists. He knew everybody. And he had done such a good job. He was honest, like when I'm talking about with money. So when he was paying off the mob, he had just done such a good job to the penny that they started putting him in charge of um, other things such as massage parlors and he got involved in that so he branched out and but what interested us the more he talked we only we had a two hour meeting with him Dave and I looked at each other he, he started telling these stories that, about people that were incredible and all of a sudden the, the, the pornography aspect of it sort of faded to the background and what came forward for us were, were the characters. And, you know, we excused ourselves and we walked outside. And, and, and David and I looked at each other and we said, you know, there's something here. And um, so we, the next thing we did was we got him in a room for a couple of weeks and just let him talk. And, um, and, and we pitched it to HBO and sold it. And then the... Uh, the, the land that I'm talking about, the source, he uh, he passed away before we even shot the pilot. But um, 
and see it as a another story of uh, an American city, and and it's uh, the rise and fall of Times Square. Now, now as co-creator compared to producer compared to executive producer, what? How does your roles change when you're a co-creator? Um, you're in charge, you know, um, and, that, and we're partners, so we we run things by each other. But there's some things that, you know, that I know that David's interested in, but I'm not really that interested in. So I don't, you know, he goes he goes for that, and I don't really. I don't really comment. You know, he loves politics, and I'm not really interested in politics. So, um, you know, he kind of tackles that aspect of it. And then I, I would say that it's fair to say that David is more the macro guy. Like, he has the broader political vision of the show, and and I have the micro vision of it. I love getting, deep, you know, deep into the characters individually and also the, the details on the, on the I'm a, uh, a stickler for for detail, so I'm in every you know when we're prepping the episodes. I'm I'm in every costume meeting, prop meeting. I'm in the location band all the time. Um, I, uh, I I I'm a car freak, so you know I I okay every single car. We're talking about a period show too, so you have to be really no cars to know when somebody's trying to slip one in on you, and. Um, and I love that kind of stuff. I even, you know, when we have a big scene, like a Times Square scene where there's hundreds of extras, I go into holding and I, and I look at everybody. I walk down the line and look at everybody because one of the things about being involved in the Deuce is I'm one of the only guys who rem- actually remembers that era. You know, I can tell you, like, if some if if they've got somebody wearing, like, um, um, you know, striped pants, like... Uh, vertical stripes, wide whale or something like that. In nineteen seventy eight I can say no, that, that didn't that was out by then because I remember in junior high school we wore it, but in high school we didn't. You know? <laughs> so that kind of thing. I'm just like really into that stuff. And and that's how you build a world. Now did you guys have a say in the casting or was that HBO? I think, you know, HBO was partners with us in the Casting of the leads, certainly, they they get very involved in that. Um, but we, you know, we had a big ensemble in this in this show with all the women who played. Um, you know, they, they they started out. Some of them started out as prostitutes, street prostitutes, and then they graduated into um, porn acting and so on, and activism. And they got out of that. And all those parts we cast through um, our long time casting director Alexa Fogel in New York and she found us some fantastic people you know um, so yeah and then the day players same thing the day players if, you, if uh, using a term that some of your listeners might not know what that is that's not extras extras don't have lines but day players will come in for an episode and do a scene with lines and um, and you generally have a bunch of those in every episode they come and go and we, you know, we cast all of those as well. So it's it's a lot of work. It's, you know, you're working a minimum of 14 hours a day and then you go home and you're looking at, and, and you get on your laptop and you're doing, uh, you're looking at reels. 
casting reels and stuff like that and, and answering questions about the costumes for the next day. Um, you know, it's, it's work. Now, in between these different shows, you also came up with the character Spiro Lucas. Where did that character come from? Um, guys I knew, um, I saw at the time, uh, I had a lot of sources, and I work with private detectives here in Washington. I go out with them and stuff like that. And when I say I go out with them, I don't mean on a date. I mean we go out riding together and do, do whatever they do during the day. But a lot of these guys work for um, um, attorneys. They go out and gather evidence before trial. And some of them, you know, this one friend of mine, that I use a lot as a source is, 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 was in a band on Discord. You know, he's a punk rock guy who, as he got older, he graduated into this kind of community service because he always works for defense. Anyway, um, what I also saw that was that some of these people were veterans of the uh, Mideast Wars, Iraq and Afghanistan. And what interested me about it was that they came back from uh, the war from combat zones and they didn't want to get office jobs some of them and they wanted to do something that was um, that in a, in a certain way replicated their their uh, days in the service meaning they got up every day with a mission um, and I just thought that was interesting and then to have a guy with PTSD who has issues of violence and so on the deep and as the books progress was also kind of interesting to me. Um, so, and then the, the uh, aspect of him being adopted and having uh, a brother who's, you know, he's white, his brother's black, and it mirrored my um, my own family, which uh, all my kids are adopted. And, you know, so I wanted to sort of write about that too, uh, just that experience. Now, you said earlier that for some reason... Your books have been in development, but they haven't become movies. Why do you think that is? Because you have such strong characters. You have such a good name in the business. And there's, they make so much crap these days. Why don't you think that your movies haven't been produced? Well, um, I've, been, um, I've been marched down the aisle a few times, but I, the ceremony at the altar never got consummated. Is that too many metaphors for you? <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and I've tried to, and I'm going to continue to try to do some of these for television. You know, Hard Revolution, which is my passion project about the 68 rides with the young Derek Strange, was at HBO. They had a regime change there. They put a pin in it. Um, I'm hoping to take that somewhere else. I'm really set on making that somewhere as a miniseries. Um, and... You know, think I haven't writing books about with with uh, minority characters is not like the recipe for success. Let me put it to you that way. Um, I had a book at I had a, a book at uh, Warner Brothers, which was actually Derek Strange, his right as rain, and the typical thing happened, which was that. Um, uh, and David Benioff wrote a really good script, David Benioff from Game of Thrones. And uh, good guy, good writer. And then they went out and um, they, they went out to the three, what they considered, this was, this was 
let's say, 15 years ago. So I, I'm not sure how much has changed. But they, the first thing they say is, well, this doesn't really translate to, to Europe, right? They, that's, they use all these um, kind of coded language, meaning, you know, the black, the leading black actor doesn't really translate. So then they go after one of three black actors because they only consider three people, three black actors to be movie stars. And, and when I say they, I'm not, I'm not targeting Warner Brothers, right? This is industry-wide. And if they can't get, the, if they can't get one of those actors, the, 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 move, the project effectively dies. But my contention is this. And I said to him, I said, well, what about Idris Elba? Because I knew Idris from The Wire. We had a good relationship. I thought I could get him interested in this. And uh, the answer was, well, he's not a movie star. And I said, well, he's going to be. Why don't you make him one? You know what I mean? Lo and behold, he is. Exactly. That's what you're fighting a lot of the time with this. And that must be so frustrating because, you know, you've, you've, you've had hit shows and just that's a problem with Hollywood. Now, I got to ask you, though, you work with David all the time. You know, you did New Orleans, you did New York. Why haven't you done a series in D.C.? I, I've wanted to for a long time. I made a movie here um, last year called D.C. Noir, um, which um, has been on the festival circuit and it's based on my short stories, but, uh, and my son Nick directed one of them. Um, but you know, the, the DC has to come on board with a full-time tax credit, meaningful tax credit, the way they have in New York and Atlanta and places like that in Louisiana to attract, um, production here. It's just not going to happen until they do that. And, um, it's a catch for me because, Something like Hard Revolution, when I when I get around to doing it, I'm only going to do it here, or I'm not going to do it. I just don't feel like, you know, all these shows that they make that are supposed to be set in Washington, like House of Cards and The Americans, shows like that, they shoot in Baltimore, they shoot in New York. It doesn't look like D.C., and, and Washingtonians know it. And, and they don't pay, they, in addition to the architecture not being correct, they don't pay attention to the details because, like I said earlier, you know, we have a style of dress here um, and and things of that nature and, and, and a manner of speaking. And we have our own music, go-go music. And that, that never makes it, its way onto the screen. And so it's important to me that if I'm going to do something that's set here, I'm, I'm going to shoot it here. So... It's a challenge. Now, you, you said you have the, the miniseries that you can't really talk about with David. Um, what else do you have going on right now? What else What, what else can we see from you? Um, I'm working on something with Megan Abbott, and we're, we're hoping to um, write that shortly. I can't really talk about it yet, but it's based on books that was published in the 60s. And um, I'm, uh, I'm thinking about my next book, and I'm still promoting things like the film DC Noir and, and uh, the paperback of my last book, The Man Who Came Uptown, just came out, out and it's um, it's about to be published, first published uh, in France. So I'm going to France in March to uh, promote that. And 
you know, it's always something. I'm always working on something. But I, the main thing is I'm starting to think about my next book. Oh, I got to tell you, uh, I like your website. And the playlist is very, uh, very cool to me. Have you always been a huge music fan? And, and where, where do you find your music from? Because the playlist is all different. Your, people, if you don't know his website, it's uh, George-Pelicanos, P-E-L-E-C-A-N-O-S.com. He has a playlist for each book. And when did you start putting playlists together? Um, you know, usually the, I always do one for my for my book. So whatever's in the book, I, I, I do a playlist for that. At some point, I even made, uh, when, when Hard Revolution came out, I had CDs made that came out with first editions. A CD of soul music from the from the uh, late sixties. Um, uh, you know, music. All I can say is that it's a big part of my life, and it continues to be. Um, I I'm always I listen to Spotify a lot because I can sample all kinds of things there. I feel a little guilty about it because um, I'm I'm not supporting uh, artists by buying their by buying their. Uh, CDs, but I don't think anybody has. You know, the business has changed. Um, and, and by the way, it changed for me too as a writer. I mean, you know, every all writers have been imp- impacted by um, the electronification of books and and the uh, you know, uh, I mean, everybody's taken a haircut because of all because of technology. Um, and so. But, you know, artists are still producing uh, music and they go out on tour and they, they make their money um, uh, by, by playing live. Uh, it used to be, it was the opposite. You know, you, the, the live music drove the uh, record sales. And now um, it's the opposite, is that um, uh, the, record, the records drive, drive the live music, which is where the profit is. Well, it's funny you said about the books. I know, like, my wife will not read a book on a tablet or a phone. It has to be the book because she always says, I just don't feel right reading it like that. She goes, I need the book in front of me, which is great because I'm pretty much the same way. It's hard. It's a pain in the ass to read on a tablet. I am too. It's not that I'm against it. I mean, I I love holding a book in my hands. And also, I've said before that I think a book, the object of a book, um, the actual object is art. You know what I mean? Like, I love everything about it—the cover and the flaps, the flap copy, and everything about it. I just, I just think it's a piece of art. So, um, and it's not all about money. Like, I, I go, I use the library as much as anybody, primarily because I don't have space for any more books right. in my house. So, you know, I walk up to the library often and, and take books out. And, you know, library is one of the greatest things we have in this country, and it's, of course, it's free. Exactly. Now, I got to ask you before we go, uh, you had mentioned when I sent you my little query letter, I had you at Graham Parker. When did you become a big Graham Parker fan? And isn't he just great? <laughs> I got to say, the guy is so awesome. Yeah, I, uh, well, Squeezie Sparks when I was in college was a big, big record for every all of us. You know, I was in this, uh, you know, I was hanging out at the building where everybody was making films and we were all into the, uh, the burgeoning punk rock scene and new wave and so on, but you know the, the rumor was was a punk, a punk band. It wasn't really a punk rock band, but um, 
they had the energy to punk. And so, you know, I was a real big fan of his. And then just a few years ago, I I saw him at the Birchmere uh, here in D.C. It's actually over, over the river in Alexandria. And I went backstage and, and hung out with him at the rumor. And it's all because of the wire. You know, like, that gets me through a lot of doors. You know, ordinarily, they wouldn't have let me backstage. Right. But those guys were all... They were all fans of the wire, so you know I took advantage of it, and uh, it was a big, it was a big thrill to meet him. And of course, he's a writer too; he's written books and right. short stories and so on. So, yeah, yeah, I saw him at a uh, at a small record store up here in New Jersey. He played twice after he did my show, and I've always been a big fan. And I find myself one afternoon skyping Graham Parker in London, and I'm blown away. So I go to his show, and he two different nights, and it's a small place. And he said he's on Twitter. What's my? And he says, "What's my Twitter account?" And I said it. And then he actually gave me a shout out on stage, and I went, "Holy crap!" You know, Graham Parker just mentioned me on stage. That's that's the coolest. Yeah, man. And the, and the band still kicks ass, you know. Yeah. You see him. I mean, they still got that energy. Anyway, George, I want to thank you for taking the time to uh, talk to me today. You've, you've such a fascinating career, and you're, you know, we gotta we gotta get some more sh- uh, movies that are actually and TV series that are actually in DC. So we we know exactly the DC scene, and so uh, are are you on Twitter? No, I, got, I don't. <laughs> I got off of Twitter. My publisher wanted me to be on it, and I just don't like it. I, I don't like the negativity, to be honest with you. Yeah. You know what I used Twitter for? I used to shout out like records I liked, and books I liked, and that's not what people get on Twitter for. Exactly. You know, they get on Twitter to get to flame people. I'm I know. Not, I can't even. I, do that. I can't even do it. Anyway, so people, go to George's website, george-pelicanos, P-E-L-E-C-A-N-O-S.com. All his books are there. Go to IMDb, look up all his work. Go back and watch The Wire. Go watch The Deuce if you haven't seen it. And just keep supporting creativity. So my Twitter is at CooperTalk. Uh, Instagram, CooperTalk1. Uh, my website is coopertalk.net, where you can find over 775 episodes. Email me at cooper at coopertalk.net. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.